You don't have to be a billionaire or a saint to make big changes in the world, says Dr. Rajiv Shah. You just need a big bet mindset. Dr. Shah has placed and won many big bets, from vaccinating millions of children to containing an Ebola outbreak in West Africa in his work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and as leader of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Now he's president of the Rockefeller Foundation and argues that often incremental improvements don't get results, but dreaming big and executing well can. He offers his optimism and a roadmap in his new book, which is called Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. And he joins me now. Hello. Hello. It's great to be with you. Nice to talk to you, and your book is relentlessly optimistic in the face of some incredible challenges. Uh, the world in many ways feels hopeless right now. If we begin with the Middle East, you worked in Gaza, and you know this issue well. Do you see any signs of hope? Well, you know, I wrote this book because we're so often bombarded in the media and social media by images of the day-to-day that are very, very difficult and challenging and we can lose sight of what becomes possible in the medium to long run if we stay focused on more optimistic visions of transformation. And I'll get into that in a moment, I'm sure, with you. Yeah. In Gaza and right now, you know, it's very, very difficult. Obviously, in addition to 1,200 Israelis being slaughtered in an inhumane attack by Hamas, we now have, you know, uh, more than 10,000 people in Gaza who've lost their lives, the vast majority of whom are innocent civilians, are also women and girls and children. And, you know, that's not acceptable and and will not be accepted in the broad court of public opinion. So I think the hope is that the Israeli military and government sees that it is in their own medium to long-term national security interest to elevate humanitarian affairs and the core value of dignity in the conduct of this necessary but difficult military operation. And they can do that if they if they follow what they're being asked to do, enable longer humanitarian pauses, create space for proper evacuations, protect the vulnerable, even in settings uh, like the hospital where those vulnerable people are being used as human shields to cover uh, Hamas operations. So there are steps that would give me hope, and we will see if the Israeli government is able to incorporate those steps in their plans and actions. And outside of the Middle East, which, uh, to be fair, would be worthy of its own full-length interview, how do you define a big bet? Well, to me, a big bet is a bold effort to make large-scale change happen. And uh, I write about, in the book, uh, I write about efforts to vaccinate every child on the planet to prevent early childhood death from simple diseases. I write about uh, standing up the testing capability in the United States during the COVID crisis in order to end lockdowns and reopen schools in our country. And I write about efforts to fight hunger, uh, some of which uh, were conducted in an international way after the 2008 financial crisis that actually also was a deep food crisis in which 47 countries experienced political violence and instability because of food crises. In all of those cases, we were, we were quite successful over a decade plus time in changing what was possible on the ground and in protecting and saving millions of lives and creating a more hopeful future. And from studying those episodes, 
I tried to glean lessons for any would-be change maker to be both an optimist and a capable practitioner uh, of working on these issues. You warn of something called the aspiration trap. What is that? Well, the aspiration trap is really that feeling you read the newspapers and you, you watch your social media and you, you just sort of feel like nothing good is possible. I mean, in America, if you're paying attention to the workings of our Congress, for example, you might think, oh, my gosh, they can't mm. do anything. Um, and, and it's why we ignore tackling some deep problems that our societies have that are actually solvable. I'll use another American example, but, you know, one quarter of all children in America are growing up in poverty, which in a wealthy nation is just absolutely unnecessary. And it'd be easy to say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It's very complex. And look, Congress doesn't work. But we just cut poverty, child poverty in half in the United States in the last two years through a, pro through a pro program called the child tax credit, the refundable child tax credit. And we have all this data on how effective it is. And our foundation is now working to make sure that that becomes a permanent part of American social policy because it's, it works and it moved tens of millions of children out of poverty and can do so again. And so the idea is to overcome the aspiration trap by focusing on real solutions that can make a huge difference in people's lives. We just had a general election here in New Zealand. We've got big problems as well, particularly around housing and, and, um, and child poverty. Uh, and I think a lot of people were disappointed that what was being offered by the major parties were tweaks around the edges. Do you see that lots too much tweaking and not enough aiming high? Well, it, I think absolutely, and especially when it comes to uh, tackling kind of big social problems. You know, if you're starting a company, you're often aiming for, you know, to be the next Elon Musk mm. or the next Bill Gates or something. Uh, but when you start working on housing, you sort of say, OK, it's OK to build a little bit of additional housing and say we did something, feel good about it and yeah. move on. Whereas if you if I write in the book about different examples of using the same kind of business like techniques, I learned from from Bill Gates, actually, about measuring results and having scorecards and collecting fast data and making changes to your efforts. That's that business like mentality should can be applied to social change and can allow you to aim much, much higher. You say that you don't have to be a saint or a billionaire to make big changes in the world. Are you living proof of that? Uh, I don't know if I'm living proof of anything, but <laughs> I will tell you, I, I got turned on to the idea that my life should be about uh, service to others when I was a kid and Nelson Mandela came to Detroit, Michigan, which is where I grew up. And Detroit is a smaller city in America. We didn't get those kinds of visitors. He came and just was so inspiring and moving on his post-apartheid uh, trip. It was just incredible. And I said, gosh, I wish I could do something. But I knew I was never going to be like Mandela, who I think of as a, as a saint in many ways. And then I worked for Bill Gates, and I saw what he could do. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, I'm never going to have those resources uh, but yes, if you bet on yourself, you give yourself a chance as as a normal person growing up. I grew up in a pretty uh, middle class background and went to school and, and kind of got a few lucky breaks. You can have an opportunity to make a big difference. Everybody, the beauty of service is everybody can serve if they choose to do so and if they give themselves the chance to try. Does it require a bit of a leap of faith within yourself? Yeah, definitely. In my experience, it did. It, I was... I grew up in an Indian American family and, and by uh, community 
tradition, uh, you were supposed to be either a doctor or an engineer. <laughs> uh, and so I became a doctor. Uh, and but I, and I didn't really know how do you get involved in public service? How do you get involved in social impact? How do you get involved in your community? And I ended up unemployed after volunteering for a presidential campaign and thought I had thrown my life away when when uh, the Gates Foundation actually called and, and offered me a job. So it does take a leap of faith, I think, and it takes uh, it takes some real commitment. And my advice to young people in particular is surround yourself with a few people who really know, you know, what you're about, what gets you inspired, because they will encourage you over the course of your career to to make those leaps of faith. Yeah, I love that. And and not as if it's just been plain sailing since then. You tell a book, uh, you tell a story in the book that might have knocked the confidence of many people. You're 36. You're the new head of the U.S. aid agency. President Obama asks you to take the lead on helping Haiti after a devastating earthquake. But then a uh, VP called Joe Biden isn't so sure. What happened? Well, you know, that did happen. President Obama called me and said, Raj, I'm putting you in charge of this civilian, military, whole of government effort. We got to do everything we can to support the people of Haiti in their time of extraordinary need. 200 plus thousand people perished and, and the entire government and the United Nations physically collapsed in, in a moment's time mm. in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And uh, so I I worked around the clock all night to get the teams in place and resourced and ready to go. And next morning, walked into the Oval Office to brief uh, the president and the vice president and the whole team. And I got there a few minutes early because I was scared out of my mind if I would be late. Uh, And they let me in early. And President Obama was facing the window and President Vice President Biden was uh, Obama was facing me and Biden was facing out the window. And I could overhear (laughs) Biden tell Obama, are you sure about this Raj Shah guy? He's like 36. And we have all these other people, including the person who ran our emergency management program, who has more experience. And Obama saw me, came over, sat me down, and we had a we had a subsequent meeting. But I walked out of that meeting and thought, I need all the help I can get to be successful here. And and I wrote write about that in the book. I'm talking to Rajiv Shah, uh, Dr. Rajiv Shah, whose book is called Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. He has uh, done some incredible work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and as leader of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Now he's president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Love to hear what you learned from Bill Gates. Apparently he was particularly handy with a red pen. Can you tell us about that? (laughs) Sure. Well, yeah, you know, I, I write in the book about an episode where we were trying to really restructure the way the world financed and procured vaccines because there simply wasn't enough vaccine supply to immunize the 104 million children born every year. And roughly half of the world's kids were not getting any meaningful protection from simple diseases. And and therefore there was a lot of unnecessary child death. And uh, I had worked with a group of experts for, I don't know, six or eight months, put a proposal together to create something called the International Finance Facility for Immunization, effectively one of the world's first big social impact bonds. And I presented it to Bill. Uh, I I sent him the memo and then was asked to meet with him. And when I got into the meeting, he pulled the memo out. and It was covered in in Mm -hmm. red ink. And he basically walked me through all the reasons it was the worst idea he had heard in a long time. And uh, it would never work for the following six or seven reasons. And the reason I write about it in the book is, you know, I was too young to be overly discouraged at that point, and I, I took his list of concerns as a roadmap for problems to solve, and we spent the next two years effectively consulting experts and 
working our way through the design and ultimately designed an instrument that overcame those concerns, Bill himself uh, really sold the idea to the President Chirac of France and Gordon Brown of the UK. And by the time that instrument was launched, uh, we raised $6 billion in this debt issuance for, for Gavi. We used the money to restructure uh, the procurement of vaccines. And over 20 years, 980 million kids have been vaccinated and 16 million child lives have been saved. So I, it was a lot of red ink, but it was also a roadmap to the, to the future. It helps not to take it personally when someone says no to you, huh? Yes, yes. And I, I think I've learned, uh, as so many others have as well, how how to try your best to separate the taking it personally from, from the work. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it's the only way to really learn and grow. I do like that, though. And uh, hopefully people take that, if nothing else, from this conversation. Concerns from people you respect are a roadmap in disguise. Um Another little uh, roadmap, three things you need to solve a big problem on a global scale, or actually even to solve a big problem in your own business or school. Can you take us through those? Sure. Well, I think a lot of times, especially in social impact, we don't think enough about solutions. And so the first piece is having kind of fresh, innovative solutions that can inspire uh, your own belief that you can solve homelessness in your community or or child health globally, or a pandemic uh, that's emerging. The second is uh, really investing in unlikely partnerships. I I have found time and again, uh, including in efforts to fight a famine in Somalia in 2011, that if we didn't pick up the phone and call Cargill and convince them to donate 10,000 metric tons of rice at the Port of Mogadishu, we would have had far higher casualties and, and death from, mm. from that tragic famine. And those unlikely partnerships, public-private in America, Democratic-Republican, are essential to success. And finally, the third component, so important, is measuring results. I mean, we, we tend to think in the social sector, well, doing good is good enough. But if you're actually trying to solve problems and not just make marginal improvements, you need data. And uh, in all of these humanitarian efforts, I talk about scorecards and data collection and deploying bioterror labs in, uh, in West Africa to get validated data during the Ebola pandemic much faster. Fast data, even if imperfect, is critical to success. And so those are the three components. Even if imperfect, yeah, data is a good example of when perfect can be the enemy of good, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Pandemics are probably the best example of that because in in the Ebola pandemic in 2014, uh, with a 70% mortality rate, you know people were waiting six seven days to get validation of a likely positive case, uh, and we just sent we sent young men on motorbikes and said if that person is bleeding and looks sick, call them positive and put it in the spreadsheet, and we'll validate it later. But you know right now we need to know where this disease might be. In the same way in America, you know, America had the highest excess mortality uh, compared to expectations of any any nation on earth uh, after through the COVID experience. And a big part of that was we relied on PCR testing or this this genetic testing of the virus in in the early days, which would take six, seven days Mm, to get a result. I remember, I remember. So people were spreading the disease when they were asymptomatic or even when they were symptomatic simply because they didn't have a result. And finally, when we started using 
fast rapid tests, even though they were less accurate, they helped us get a get a handle on the actual disease. And I think that's something uh, New Zealand did much better than America during that crisis. You're keen on experimentation. Uh, you you say keep experimenting, and that's even when you're in the middle of something major, even when something, or maybe especially when something is very complex. Can you talk to me about the power of experimentation and, and why that, which sounds like a, a sort of a recipe for uncertainty or, or, or lack of a, a clear plan, can actually be the secret to success? Well, you know, it, it, often in either big humanitarian situations or long-standing efforts to to make social change happen at scale, we forget that we don't have all the answers when we get started. And so we need to keep learning what works, what doesn't work, and keep adjusting. During the Ebola crisis uh, in West Africa, we actually, President Obama made a big bet. He deployed American troops for the first time in U.S. history to fight a disease in a hot zone. And their stated mission was to build these big Ebola treatment units where people could go in, be isolated from others, and reduce uh, contagion as a result. The problem was nobody would go in because no one ever came out, sadly. And so so we said, well, this isn't going to work. And we started to listen to local communities. And they had identified that most of the spread was happening through washing and caring for and redressing the bodies of the deceased, Mm. which was a local custom. And uh, so they put together these burial teams with WHO body bags and full protective equipment and removed the bodies in a culturally sensitive way before any of that could happen. And we saw a quick 70% reduction in case transmission. And instead of having uh, our CDC estimated 1.6 million cases of Ebola, we had 30,000 total cases of Ebola. And you know, that success was driven by the constant experimentation that allowed us to see something's not working, what's the next thing that could work. And But doing that in the middle of a big military operation and civilian and humanitarian operation is tough. And I write about some tools for people to be able to experiment even when the stakes are high. Yeah, and when they're not as high, when we're not going out to solve world hunger, but we see things in our community we'd like to act on or be a part of, what is the lesson there? You say community activism can spread outside the community. Yeah, you know, one of the things I get to do at the Rockefeller Foundation is support other big betters on efforts they make. And I write about uh, one such leader, a mayor in America named Mayor Mitch Landrew of New Orleans, who observed that the Confederate statues that were uh, placed in New Orleans were there to influence and in some cases recognize actual terrorist acts of violence against black and integrated uh, police forces back in the day in the United States. And he worked community leader by community leader for years to build support to take those statues down and replace them with something more uplifting and unifying. And, uh, and in a moment, he, he confronted a challenge because a white supremacist group had car bombed the, uh, had, had literally bombed and, and exploded the car of the contractor who was supposed to take the statues down. And, and Mitch needed some extra help to get that project done. We stepped in uh, very quickly to help make that happen. But the point is, he did that. It's felt like, okay, taking four statues down in New Orleans is just a small community activity, but it was a meaningful one. And sure enough, it started a national movement that caused us to question the Confederate monuments and other public works around our country in America, some of which were put up to intimidate people not to celebrate 
history. And so uh, it led to a national movement and a national part of our racial reconciliation dialogue, which is still ongoing. So you never know when a strong mm. community action is going to inspire a nation to, to think differently about something. And that's a great example of a big bet that started in a small community. Finally, how do we take all that you've learned about solving problems and making big bets and apply it to the big problem of our age, climate change? Well, this is the mission these days of the Rockefeller Foundation. We, we know that we are behind on all of the big indicators of climate change. We're, we are hitting these tipping points of ice melt and ocean level rise and sea uh, level warming faster and at lower aggregate average temperature increases than any of the scientists thought. And that's going to put billions of people at risk. So this is the challenge of our time. Uh, but we also think it's realistic to be optimistic about solving climate change. You know, the, the renewable energy technology now exists to allow billions of people who are still today planning on using new coal-fired plants that they're constructing actively today to power their futures. That can all be replaced with renewable energy that is cheaper, cleaner, more reliable, and more accessible to people who don't even have access to real electricity today. And we know that these are solvable problems. And so we're, we're engaged in a series of big bets to transform agriculture, to make it more regenerative, to transform energy, to ensure the renewable energy frontier reaches every country and not just the richest ones, and to transform uh, even the way we do infectious disease surveillance to account for the fact that climate change will in fact change the nature of pandemic threats in the future. Well, it's a real uh, pleasure to spend some time with you. Thank you for the work you've done, and I'm really excited to see uh, what you do next with the Rockefeller Foundation. I've been speaking to Dr. Rajiv Shah, uh, and his book is called Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. Thanks, Raj. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, and wonderful to meet you this way.